0: Yeah, I didn't have a microphone on the whole time, which is probably a good thing. <clears throat> as I said last week, we we're going to spend uh, last week and this week on a, a study in Christmas, Christ's birth, probably more appropriate, um, and the ramifications of that. We're going to do that again this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 this morning. And as you're turning there, I'm going to start us off with a word of prayer, and then we can jump in the text. Lord, I pray you'll help us this morning as we consider... Uh, The birth of Christ that we were to celebrate last Wednesday as tradition holds for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will help us this morning that we will recognize uh, a little bit more and be reminded a little bit more of the amazing event that actually did take place and the ramifications, especially the ramifications of the event that began many, many events that concluded ultimately in the death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension of Christ. And so Lord, help us this morning as we consider these these things, as we ponder these things uh, in your scriptures, that we will uh, be drawn close to you and that we will help, we will be helped by your spirit to understand the amazing contrast that this text presents. So help us, in your name I pray, amen. As is so much of the scriptures, uh, this passage that we're going to look at this morning is a study in contrast. You've heard me say this many, many times, that um, you find a series of contrast god gives us contrast everywhere this or that or this not that or not this that you know a variety of ways that the the scriptures approach it but we find that there is a pretty well constant drumbeat of contrasts being presented and the reason why is because we learn the contrast we f- we discover our need as we discover who we are there's the contrast when we discover Christ as the, as a solution to our need the contrast us Christ for example it's in that in this text in Isaiah 8 and 9 that we discover an amazing contrast as several actually and just so you're aware there's a lot of verses we're going to read we're not going to be able to work our way through everything in this text but we're going to start we're going to try to highlight and maybe prime the pump for further studies for you as we begin the process of wrapping up what we call the Christmas season. But for true believers, it should never really wrap up the Christmas season because the Christmas season we recognize, as I prayed, is that it is the beginning of a sequence of events, isn't it? The scriptures, interestingly enough, don't describe Christmas or the birth of Christ, more appropriately, as just a a little event that takes place. it's, It's described as something that happens in the fullness of time. And the idea of, in the fullness of time, this is a freebie, not in this text, is that all of the history before them was rushing towards this moment. This is not a little insignificant thing. Now, of course, it is just an introduction to what is going to come, right? Everything that unfolds in the next 33 years after Christ's birth. Um, But it is the fullness of time that Christ comes to this planet. He breaks through time and space And is born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem. And then that begins the process of reconciliation and redemption coming to our world. Let's start in, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. And we're going to actually read all the way through chapter 9, verse 7. So follow along and I'll read it. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, And warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap. And a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portions to in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living, to the teaching, and to the testimony?" If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, let them be enraged and will, uh, I'm sorry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom. Of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So if I may just pause there for just a moment, it doesn't sound like a very Christmasy message, does it? So far, <laughs> that's the contrast. The contrast is seen in eight, eleven to the end of the chapter. That is the negative side, and then the contrast becomes clear as we go into chapter nine, starting in verse one. And you see the contrast established in nine, one by the first word, don't you? But establishes the contrast, but there will be no gloom for who, her, who was in anguish. In the former time, he was brought into contempt. Uh, he was brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Or light has shone. You have multiplied the nation; you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with har- joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod for his oppressor of his oppressor, you have broken is on the. Day of Midian. For every boot that was trampling, trampling, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name argue that most likely all of us are very familiar with verse 6 and 7. At least the first three quarters of 7. But most of us are not very familiar with the rest of it that just happened, that we just read, Is are we? We've seen this text over and over and over and over again. And every Christmas, don't we see it? Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, etc., etc., etc. We know that almost by heart, don't we? But we have never most likely seen it in its context. At least most of us probably never have seen it in its context. And the beauty of the text, I would argue, is the context of the text. Because in the context of the text is when we discover the the idea of the gospel. There's no gospel by itself in 6 and 7. The gospel becomes clear because of 8, 11, and following. So we're going to spend some time working our way through 8, verse 11, and following first. Background. Isaiah is ministering to a people that are known as the people of Israel. In this text, he's ministering to both the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. His primary focus are the ten northern tribes that is called Israel, the two southern tribes called Judah. Uh, he is secondarily ministering to in this text. It shows up both. Both of them show up. We discover some things about the, the condition, especially of Israel, the ten northern tribes in the text and we'll see it come up repeatedly. But let me give you a little bit of background. Isaiah has been warning the the children of Israel that unless they repent, and he already knows that they're not going to repent, right? Chapter 6, when God calls him to go and proclaim repentance, he tells him, I'm telling you to go so that they don't repent and are judged and destroyed. So he knows They're not going to. They're not going to repent. And so he's warning them, calling them to repent, warning them if they don't repent, what's going to happen is God's going to raise up the the country known as Assyria who are going to come down and attack and wipe them out. Well, already that attack has begun. Already Assyria has been moving against the ten northern tribes of Israel. Times are tough. Historically, when Assyria moved against Israel, it was brutal. Assyria was probably the most brutal nation that ever lived on this planet. The most brutal group of people that ever lived on this planet. Destructive. Horrific. Abuse. We think, we, when we think of horrific abuse, we think of people like Hitler, don't we? The Assyrians were like ten times worse. Nightmarishly worse. And they were already in the process of coming against Israel, which meant that life was getting very difficult for the children of Israel. Some were being captured. Some were being killed. Others were suffering grotesquely. Starvation. Um, The Scriptures describe that people were eating their children to stay alive. I mean, it was ugly. And this is the context that Isaiah speaks in chapters 8 and 9, And so it starts out again in verse 11. For the Lord spoke to me, spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, do not call conspiracy what all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear or be in dread. What are the people fearing? Assyria. They're fearing, uh, fearing what? The destruction. They're fearing the difficulty. They're fearing the struggle. They're fearing the pain, the anguish, and, and ultimately either slavery or death. And most of the slavery ended up being in death, as history is recorded. And Isaiah is told by God, you know, and by the way, they were always coming up with all sorts of conspiracies of why all this was happening. Because you know why they came up with conspiracies for why all these things were happening? because they didn't want to acknowledge it was all happening because they were in rebellion against God. Does that make sense? And so they'd come up with all sorts of conspiracies. God warns Isaiah, don't fall into the trap of all these conspiracies that the people of Israel are coming up for why these things are happening to to all of you. And don't, he says, don't fear what everybody else fears. Well, we know what they all fear. And God tells Isaiah, don't fear that. Which seems pretty bizarre, doesn't it? But wouldn't it be natural to fear suffering? Wouldn't it be natural to fear hunger, starvation? Would it be natural to fear slavery? Would it be natural to fear grotesque torture to the point of death over a long, long, long time? Well, yeah, it does. But he says don't do that. Do not fear what they fear, and he even says what? Nor be in. Dread. Kinda of, if you think about it, it sounds a little bit like if, if I may if I may say this, if you if you think about it, on the other side of the coin, you find Habakkuk, and not on the other side of the coin, but fleshing out the picture a little more, you find Habakkuk chapter three, when he says in chapter three, even if all these horrors happen, which they're going to, because God promised them. He says, What? Yet I will what? Trust in the Lord. You know what he says? That's exactly what God is telling Isaiah. Don't dread, don't fear, don't get involved in the in the conspiracies. And what he's going to do from here on out is he's going to explain where his heart should be. But he's also going to talk about the difficulties as well. But he says, don't don't fear, don't get involved in the conspiracies, or and don't get don't be in dread. Verse thirteen. But the Lord of Hosts, and the Lord of Hosts means what again? Lord of armies. And who's coming against Israel? The Assyrians with their armies. But in reality, who's coming against Israel? The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. But the Lord of hosts, what does he say? Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Why? Because these things are all ordained by God. That's what God is telling Isaiah. Let him be your fear. Focus on him. Focus on glorifying him, worshiping him, and honor him. And then let him be your dread if you dishonor. Him. Verse 14. And notice what he says. And here's our first contrast. Verse 14. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel, that is, Israel and Judah. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken and shall be snared and taken. Interesting study. Interesting study in contrast. Because he starts out saying, what again? And he will become a what? A sanctuary. What is a sanctuary? Exactly. Exactly. He will become a safe place, but then right after he says he will become a sanctuary, or he will become a, san- a, san- a safe place, he says what? And a stone of offense, a, a rock of stumbling to both his houses of Israel. What's he talking about? Well, there are a few, aren't there? There are some, to steal a word from the scriptures, there are a faithful remnant in Isaiah's day who love God, who are hearing the warning that Isaiah is bringing, don't get involved in the conspiracies, don't get involved in the fear, don't get involved in the dread, but trust in the Lord. There's a small group who are living their life trusting the Lord. For them, He's going to be sanctuary. Now does that mean that no bad things are going to happen to them? No. No. In fact, Habakkuk makes it very clear. He knows he's going to die. And he does. And it's going to be a gruesome death. But the sanctuary is, what can man do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? But we have a contrast, don't we? On the one hand, it's going to be a sanctuary. Who can do anything to me when God is my sanctuary, right? Ultimately, I have, I, I have a phrase I use a lot. What can they do? Take away my birthday? Because that's the worst, right? The worst anybody can do to me is take my birthday away, right? That is, they kill me. It's the worst anybody could do to me. What's the worst that God can do to someone? Send you to hell. Send your soul to hell for eternity. What a study in contrast. Sounds like someone taking my birthday sounds like a sanctuary, doesn't it? In contrast? But it's interesting that the predominance of Isaiah's statement is not on sanctuary, is it? The predominant emphasis is not on sanctuary, quite to the contrary, it's on a stone of, st- of offense, rock of stumbling, a snare. Those are the three things said, isn't it? Rock, stone and snare. One sanctuary, rock, stone, and snare. Three bad, bad things. Why is that? Because there's only a small faithful remnant that are, are walking faithfully, not fearing, not dreading, and are not getting involved in all these conspiracies. And what does he say? For the most part, in other words, verse 14, most people are going to what? Be in the sanctuary? No, most people are going to find God, Yahweh, a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling, and ultimately, chapter 9, Jesus to be the case, and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It is interesting that he uses the word snare twice. In verse 14, he says, snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And verse 15, and many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. Interesting. Statement. Because it it has both a near and far statement. All these have near and far statements. There are going to be people who are going to trust in the Lord. Not get involved in where the rest of Israel is. There are some people who are going to trust in the Lord. But these other people, they're going to near. They're going to be stumbling. They're going to trip and fall. And they're going to be snared and taken away near to where? Assyria. Far. As we just said, they're going to stumble over Jesus, they're going to trip and fall, and they are going to be snared and taken away to... No, in the far far story would be hell. Near is Assyria, far is hell. And that's exactly what he's driving towards. Now, let me just stop on that. For Isaiah, in other words, fear, dread... Getting involved in the conspiracies is evidence of what? You don't, you don't trust in God, therefore, you're not in the sanctuary. Correct? You're not in the sanctuary. And when he says predominantly, people are going to be snared, they're going to trip and fall, they're going to stumble because they're not in the sanctuary, they are actually going to be hauled off to Assyria and ultimately hauled off to hell. In light of all that, Isaiah turns in verse 16 and he says, What? Bind up the testimony. What that means is protect it. What testimony? What do you think he's referring to? The testimony. The truth is revealed in the Scriptures. Bind up the testimony. Protect it. Value it. Shelter it. Care for it. Watch over it. Value it. That's That's what it means. Isaiah declares to this small remnant, bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples which shows that there is a small group of faithful ones, right? Seal up the teaching among my disciples. Value it. Protect it. And the implication is communicate it. Teach it. Proclaim it. Don't compromise it. When people are after the other thing, say, no, thus saith the Lord. We're going to get back to that in just a few seconds because we're going to bring all of this. Right now we're sticking to the historical record. We're going to jump it into today's time frame as well, if that's okay, in the future. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among the disciples. Verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in Him. Isaiah, what did he just say in verse 17? I will what? Wait. I will wait for the Lord who is doing what? Hiding His face. face. What do you think that means? Now this may come as a shock. When it says He's hiding His face, it means, simply put, He's protecting the truth from them so that they do not turn, repent, and believe. That's what it means. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. That is his face of blessing. And the reason why he's hiding his face of blessing is because he has already in his plan is to what? Destroy them. Because of their rebellion. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Unlike everyone else, my hope is what? In him. My hope is, and this is interesting, I want to put it in its context. Isaiah is not saying, my hope is in escaping, is it? My hope is in safety. Is that what his hope is in? My hope is in security. My hope is in comfort and ease. No, he's saying, what? Listen to it again. I will wait. For the Lord. Now the historical record is clear in the Scriptures in Isaiah and elsewhere. Waiting on the Lord here is just like Habakkuk. Waiting on the Lord is for the destruction to come. Because He promised it. It's not avoiding the destruction. Waiting on the Lord is for the destruction to come firstly, but at the same time, I'm waiting on the Lord for something even greater. And that's going to be revealed in chapter 9. Right now, it's just, I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm waiting for the Lord. And the Lord I'm waiting for is the one who is actively hiding his face from the children of Israel. And then he, and he states, and I hope in him. And what that looks like, we're going to talk about it again in just a few minutes. Verse 8. Uh, 18 behold I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and importance for or in Israel from the Lord of host uh, yeah, from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion he's referencing he and his children as, as being um, people who are faithful to God, who are hoping and waiting on the Lord, depending on the Lord, not getting involved in the fear, dread, and conspiracies, and so they are like little mini lights in the midst of all the darkness that is there. Their lives and their words are proclaiming the truth. They're living out the truth. It is very evident. The contrast is evidently clear, is what Isaiah is saying. I and my children are signs, whom the Lord has given me, are signs and portents in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. In other words, he and his children are are pointers, as it were, to the Lord. Everywhere they go, they're pointers to the Lord. They're signs. They're like road signs. The Lord is this way. The Lord is not that way. But that is put in exact contrast to verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter. What? Huh? Huh? Isaiah and his children are there being signs, road signs, screaming out, the Lord is this way, not that way. The people of Israel are doing what? They're saying, let's go that way. In that case, it was the the necromancers. And what are necromancers? Anybody have any idea? Like, spirits of people who are going to predict the future. Yeah, they're... they're, 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 they're yeah, they they well they they they're, they're trying to try supposedly trying to gather information and wisdom from the dead. Okay? That's who they are. That's what they did. The mediums and necromancers are people who are and it's interesting how he describes them, who chirp and mutter. In the Hebrew the, 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 the actual the idea is uh, they're ventriloquists. They, they go to the grave sites and they actually are like, they're, they're throwing their voice to make it sound like there's some noise coming out of the graves. And then they interpret the, the, the sounds and say, this is what the dead are telling us for our future and how you ought to live. The point is, Isaiah and his children and the disciples that that are with Isaiah and his children are saying, "This is the way. Walk ye in it, and not that way." And they're saying, "Let's go that way." And they're listening to everything but the truth. Let's not get caught up too much in the necromancers and that type of thing, because we say, "Well, well we don't know anybody." That's into necromancy, although it is something today. Um, but you may be able to say, oh, I don't want anybody be like that, so it really has no application. But no, it, the idea is this is the way we walk in it, not that way. And which way is the world going in Isaiah's day? That way. Which Has anything changed? <laughs> They're still going that way, aren't they? Well, maybe it's not necromancers. Maybe it's not mediums. Maybe it's not the the chirping and muttering like he describes here, but it is, isn't it? It absolutely is. Anything but God's way. What does he say? And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? It's the question. That's the, 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 the huge, gigantic question for Isaiah. God promised that this would happen if they wouldn't repent. And it's happening because they didn't repent. Wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't it make sense for the people to inquire of their God? Well, oh, wait a second. God said it. It's happening. We didn't follow what he said. Maybe we should turn back to him. Doesn't that make sense? Well, of course it does. It absolutely makes sense. Then he goes on, should they inquire of the dead on the behalf of the living? Which is a really intriguing statement in Isaiah's day. Because why are the dead dead? It's an easy question, but it's not as easy as you think it is. Why are the dead dead? The dead are dead because they're in rebellion. That's why they're dead. The dead he's referring to are the dead who have been killed by the initial attacks of the Assyrians. Why would you inquire of the dead? They were in rebellion, which is why they're dead. They never repented. Why would you inquire of them for wisdom for how to live? What a bizarre thing to do, isn't it? Verse 20 Isaiah then turns again, contrast. You and I think it's appropriate to hear it this way, it sounds like a chant or a cheer. And it is. What does he say? To the teaching and to the testimony. It's like Isaiah is now speaking to his children and his disciples. To the teaching and to the testimony. What does he mean when he says it that way? He's establishing, obviously, a contrast to the necromancy and the mediums. He's establishing a contrast to things that are worthless and condemning to the only hope they have, which is in God. And what is he referring to in verse 20? To the teaching of the testimony, he's talking about the truth is declared in God's word as well as in his true prophets. To the teaching, to the testimony. In other words, the idea is cling to the teaching, cling to the testimony, or rush to the teaching, rush to the testimony. Why? Because these things are all happening because of the Lord and by the Lord's design, by His sovereign plan. And if that's true, to the law, to the testimony. Not to the necromancers and mediums. To the law, to the testimony. And he continues on in verse 20, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What that means is if they won't speak according to the word, if they're rejecting the word of God, if they're not proclaiming the word of God, if they're not speaking the word of God into the situation and circumstances that the people find themselves in, if they're not speaking the word of God into it, there's a reason why they're not. And the reason is because the dawn has not risen in them. That's the idea the dawn has not risen in them. Because the dawn had risen in them, what would they be doing? To the law! To the testimony! That's where they'd be going. But if that's not where they're going, it's because the dawn has not risen in them. That is, the light has not risen in them yet. In other words, they're still in darkness. Because they're in light, light would what? Yes, sounds like First John, doesn't it? I think you'd appreciate that, Ken. If the light was in them, the light would shine from them, wouldn't it? So if the light is not shining from them, if their cheer, as it were, their rallying cry, as it were, is not to the law, to the testimony, if that's not their rallying cry if that's not the theme of their lives, it's because the dawn has not yet risen. They have no dawn. What does it mean that the dawn has not risen in them? What are the ramifications of it? Verse 21, they will pass through the land Greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their God, I'm sorry, their king and their God, and turn their faces upward. So they will actively what? Reject their king, who God placed there. They will actively reject their God. And when it says they will turn their faces upwards, this is not upwards in prayer and repentance. This is the upward turn of their face in rebellion and hatred to their God. Which at this point in time has not happened, but it says they will. In other words, it will happen in a little bit. As times get worse and worse and worse, that will begin to happen. Verse 22, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Sounds pretty dark, doesn't it? Sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? Let me just go back to 11-22 through of chapter 8 real briefly and try to bring it up to speed here. Because I think that what Isaiah is saying to Israel at this point in time echoes down through the tunnel of time, as it were, to today. Just as Isaiah was saying in that day today, there's several things Isaiah is saying. Don't get involved in the conspiracies. Why do things happen in our world? Why? Because God has planned them for his purposes. And if that's true, then how should we respond to it? Don't fear. Don't be in tread. But instead, what should we do? What does it say in this chapter, chapter 8? Wait. The operative word is wait. Wait what? Wait for the Lord. And we should do what? We should honor him as holy. You know what it says? You know what it says? verse 13 but the lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy let him be your what fear and let him be your dread. what he says has things changed? Have have things changed? Is it, is it still a dark world? Are things still spinning wildly out of control from our perspective as we look just from our eyes? Yeah? Let Him be your fear. What does that mean? Simply said, fear Him. Because these things are by God. All things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. To Him be glory forever. Amen. If we're in God, in Christ, then we should find ourselves resting in Him, honoring Him, letting Him be our fear, letting Him be our dread. We've talked about that many, many times before. And we should wait on Him and enjoy the sanctuary. Well, you know what that looks like? You know what it looks like today? To fear the Lord? To be in dread of the Lord? To wait on the Lord? To honor the Lord? You know what it looks like? Looks like the same thing it looked like in Isaiah's day. You know what it looks like? Ready? It's really simple. To the law, to the pro to to the testimony. Nothing has changed, has it? Has anything changed? The idea for Isaiah is when he when he shouts out to the law and to the testimony, it's because that's what's in him. He's enthralled. With God's revelation, in other words, he's captivated with God's revelation, what He revealed in the Scriptures, and he's saying, "When I see what's going on around me, to the law and to the testimony, doesn't it sound a lot like, like Second Corinthians chapter four? I mean, it does. You know, all sorts of bad things happen to me, but you know what?" God is, is using these things for his glory. And it's for the purpose of revealing the gospel. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 4 is saying? And Paul says it. yeah, these things are killing me, but they're revealing the gospel, and that's all right. Because he's all about the law and the testimony, the, the word of God. And if we're all about the word of God, what's going to evidence that? What's going to be the evidence that we're all about the word of God to the law and to the testimony? What's going to be the evidence Yes, we're going to proclaim it. It will be on our mouths. That's what it says. Did you pick it up there? To the teaching and the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Did you hear what he just said? The evidence that someone is waiting on the Lord, is honoring His name, is fearing and dreading the Lord, is that the Word of God is being taught by them. As a result, they're not fearing. The evidence is that they're teaching the Word of God. If they're not teaching, he says in verse 20, if they're not teaching it, if they're not speaking it, it's because what? They're in the darkness. There's no dawn. The dawn has not risen in them. You see, we... we, (laughs) You've heard me say it before, but I find it stunning how often we we have this idea that someone can be a Christian, but they don't talk about the Lord. They, they, they don't talk about the Scriptures. They don't proclaim Him. They're not enthralled with Him, but somehow they can be saved. It says here what? They're not saved. They're not. If they're not speaking, then the dawn has not yet Come, it is not yet arisen. That's what it says. I would challenge you to find any place in the scriptures where someone turns to Christ and they don't begin to speak. It's everywhere. Out of the abundance of the what? Heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. To the law, or to the teaching, to the testimony. You know what it says? But for those, and by the way, we're talking about people who are viewing themselves as covenantal people. Right? Israel, Judah. What's going to happen to them? They're going to be distressed and hungry. And they get enraged. And then they'll start saying things that are just way out of line. And then eventually they'll be thrust into utter darkness. Thick darkness. Not much difference today, is there? No, we don't have the Assyrians coming after us. Not much difference. And by the way... Again, we can get caught up in the mediums and necromancers, but how often do we hear people who claim to be Christians talk to other people who are going through difficulties or struggles, and they talk to them about everything but the Scriptures? They give advice. You've all been there, right? Where you've received advice from people who claim to be believers, but what they give you is not from the Scriptures? Ever happened? can't tell you how many times I talk to people who, who I'm, I'm in conflict with. Happened many times in our church. Happened many times outside our church. Happened many times when I was living up in upstate New York where I'd be talking to somebody, and they'd be arguing with me about something or, or just upset with me about something. And as we talk, I'm listening to what they say, and I, I, and I let them keep going and going and, going and 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 going for like an hour, and they just keep talking about their view on things, and I keep responding with, well, but God says, and I tell them what the Scriptures say. And they say, yeah, but, I always hate the yeah buts. Yeah, but, and then they throw something else out. And they say, well, I think, blah, 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 blah. And I say, yeah, but the scriptures say, yeah, but I think. And they, they say, well, blah, blah, blah. And I say, the scriptures say, they say, yeah, but blah, 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 I think. Or so-and-so says. And after about an hour of that, I usually say to people, you know, we've been talking for the last hour. And for an hour, maybe even two hours, you keep on throwing out ideas that you think are right and your ideas that other people think are right, that you think they're right on, and I keep throwing out the scriptures and all you've done for an hour is rejected every single scripture I've thrown at you. And you have tried to trump the scriptures with other teachings. That is no different from necromancers. You realize that? No different. To the, to the testimony. To the word of God. That's what it says. That's what Isaiah is declaring. It's a hopeless situation, it sounds like, at this point in time. But then we turn to chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Now we turn to the prophecy. 600 and some years before Christ is born, but there will, there's going to come a point in time when there will be no gloom. But now is not the point, Right? <laughs> In this day, in Isaiah's day, it was not the point. But in the future yet, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. What he's talking about there is these are two lands up close to the Sea of Galilee. Assyria has already attacked once. And these two lands have already lost the vast majority of their population. Contempt has come. Those two lands have been decimated. Two parts of Israel have been absolutely decimated. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. Interesting statement. Again, prophecy. Prophecy. What do you say? In the latter times, those same lands will become glorious places. Why do you think that is? Because a lot of Jesus' ministry is going to take place up there around the Sea of Galilee. A lot of Jesus' teaching and miracles will take place in that very land that Assyria absolutely decimated because of their rebellion. Light will come. In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They haven't yet, but it's a prophecy, remember. The people who have walked in darkness, that is the children of Israel, have seen a great light. Light has shined. He's going to describe what that light is in a little bit. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness... A little shift from thick darkness. It's mentioned in in the end of chapter eight, which is basically referring to the same thing. Who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness? On them a light show, has, has a light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff. For his shoulder, the rod of his of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now let's stop there for a second. Verse 2 through verse 5, again, is prophecy. But this, interestingly enough, as we look back upon the later um, explanation in in uh, in clarification in in the New Testament is a prophecy that in Isaiah's day had not yet come to be, but it has not even yet come to be. It hadn't in Isaiah's day. It hadn't in Jesus' day. It hadn't yet in the Apostles' day. This, in other words, is a prophecy yet to come. Verses 2 through 5. Listen to it again. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a, the, has light shone. And it goes on. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy in the harvest. Does this sound like something that ever happened? Oh, yeah, there's been people that got saved after Jesus' ministry, right? Acts 2. We've been looking at Acts 2 through, through 8 or so. Has people have been saved? Yes, people have been saved. But what's also going on in the book of Acts? Great what? Persecution. Why? Because people still at that point in time hate the light. But there is coming a point in time when when the land will be summed up with great joy at the harvest. And they will be glad when they divide the spoil. The increase in joy will come. Verse 4, the rod of the oppressor will be broken. And every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That clearly has not yet happened, has it? We are in a time frame of war and rumors of war, are we not? All the time. It is yet to become, to come. But six in following, however, has come. In light of all that, we come to six. For unto us, a child is born. This again is prophecy in Isaiah's day, but it is now fulfilled. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor in absolute contrast with mediums and necromancers, right? Does that make sense? Absolute contrast. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Set up, not in contrast, but in, in a way contrast, in contrast to the rulers of the of the children of Israel at this point in time, but not in contrast to the Lord of hosts. Mighty God. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. He will bring where there once was Not just war horizontally, right? Not just tumult horizontally. And not even primarily, right? Because really, the horizontal tumult, the horizontal conflict is just evidence, right? It's evidence of what? Vertical tumult. Vertical conflict between man and God. For unto us a child is born. To us... A son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Where once there was nothing but war between us and God. He brings what? Peace. Verse 7. of the, And this is not short term. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government... And of peace, what? There shall be no end. When His government is established and He brings peace, that peace will know no end. And by the way, that is a prophecy that has been fulfilled. Do you realize that? Because what did uh, Matthew 28 say? All authority all power have what been given unto Me. Those are kingdom terms. He's the King of the kingdom. And His kingdom has been thoroughly established. We don't wait for a kingdom yet to come. His kingdom has been established. It has come. The only question is, have we been a recipient of the king who has brought the kingdom and has brought peace? That's the question. Right? That's the question. He goes on, There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth, what time forth? The time of the child coming. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, that's what the Christmas story is all about. The son had been sent as a baby. A child is born and his government will be established. And when his government is established, and it was established because of the crucifixion and resurrection, As a result of that, all authority, all power is given. And it has no end. And for those who are part of that kingdom, He is the Prince of Peace. And we have peace between God and man. Now the New Testament fleshes that out dramatically. Peace is brought because we are adopted as sons. And we become family. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. There's no end. If that's true, can I just really become contemporary now? If that's all true, a couple questions I need to ask us, each one of us. Are we listening to mediums? Are we listening to necromancers? Now I know, literally speaking, we're not listening to mediums and necromancers. I know that. But it's just a picture. It's just a, an idea. Would, would, would I say and would you say that the ramifications of the Prince of Peace coming, a baby being born, and all that came because of a baby being born as described in Isaiah chapter 9, as well as many other places, would we say as a result of that That is, that what Christ has accomplished has been applied to our lives, and the evidence of it is honoring the Lord. The result of that is not fearing and not dreading anything but the Lord. Would we say that the result of that is waiting on the Lord? Would we say, as we look at ourselves, would we say that the ramifications, the truth of the matter is that because Christ has come, now the cheer, if I may, the mantra, if I may use that term, the theme of my life is to the teaching and to the testimony. Would we, as we examine our lives, see in an ever growing way that I just find that I can't help in a greater and greater way? I can't help but talk, speak about the child who has come, the child who has been born. I can't help but talk, speak of the Word of God. Because see, here's one of the problems, and I find it really interesting. Again, too often I find people say, Yes, amen to the Christmas story. Amen that a child has been born. Amen. That there's a baby in a manger. And I'm not talking about people of the world that do it just at Christmas time. Because it's a tradition. I'm talking about people in the church too often I find are people who would say amen to all of six, all of it. Yes, maybe even seven, the beginning of seven. But the idea of chapter eight is absolutely absent. It's just absent. Week after week, after month, after year, after decades. And it's not to the, to the Word of God. It's not to the, to the Scriptures. It's not to what God has said. It's to what so-and-so has said. Or it's to what I say. And we miss the point that if Christ is anything, if the little baby is anything, If Jesus, who that little baby grew up to be an adult human male, if Jesus is anyone, if his death meant anything, if his resurrection means what the scriptures say his resurrection means, is it possible? If it's true, is it possible? That his people would be after mediums and necromancers? That's ludicrous, isn't it? It's absolutely ludicrous. If what the scriptures reveal is true, even in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, if that's true, if it is true that Jesus is a wonderful counselor, Why would we look anywhere else? Why would we? If it is true that He's mighty God and all that means, why would I look anywhere else? If it is true that He is everlasting Father, why would I look at temporal? Why would I? If it is true, he is the Prince of Peace. Why would I try to look anywhere else for peace? If it is true that of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end, again, why would I look elsewhere? If His kingdom is justice and righteousness, now and forevermore, why would I look for justice and righteous now and evermore elsewhere? My point is, as we wrap up the Christmas season, that at least the traditional Christmas season, who is Jesus? And why is he so worthy of my worship? Who is Jesus and why is he so worthy of my life? Who is Jesus? And probably another question to ask. Who do you really believe? Who do you really believe? And what is the evidence of my life and your life? Who do you really believe is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? Evidentially. The call of Isaiah was to repent and follow Jesus. In Isaiah's day, God said in Isaiah 6, they will not believe. I would argue that for the vast majority of people in our world today, the statement is still the same. The vast majority will not believe. But he has not said about our day that no one will believe. He has not said that. Quite to the contrary, the call throughout the New Testament is repent and what? Believe. The call in the Scriptures is to examine ourselves to see if we're really of the faith. Isaiah eight and nine talks about what it looks like to be in the faith. It does. It describes it pretty accurately, correctly, and powerfully what it looks like to be a believer. I think one of the points of the text is for us to look at ourselves and say, "Is Christ this in my life? Is this who Christ really, who I really believe Christ is? Evidentially, the way I live, the way I think, in light of who or what I fear, who or what I dread, who or what I honor, who or what I wait for—is it Christ?" Or something else? Or someone else? Or a conglomerate of the two? Is it eternal te- or is it temporal? Is my longing for the eternal or the temporal? Because I want to remind you, we are in that already not yet time frame, right? Christ has come, but he has yet to come. Are we really longing for his return? Are we? The baby has been born. We celebrate it at Christmas. But as is described in this text, there's a darkness to the whole thing, isn't there? Isn't there? There's a darkness to the whole thing. In Isaiah's day, the darkness was Assyria, God's tool. In our day, there's a darkness to the whole thing. You know what the darkness is? The Scriptures tell us there's coming a day of what? Judgment. There is coming a day. We can pretend like it doesn't exist. We can pretend like it's not really going to happen. There's coming a day of judgment. And there there will be a time when the sorting will take place. And the sorting will be dramatic. Praise the Lord that Christ has come. Because without Christ coming, there would be no sorting because there would be nothing to sort. The call of Christmas is a call to repent and believe because there is a certain darkness, a thick darkness. There is a certain gloom, but when the light shines, Everything changes dramatically. So would you join me in prayer as we pray to God and ask that the light shines in our hearts in our lives and in our world? shall we? Lord help us? Because we are too often people who <clears throat> we sell our souls for a bowl of porridge. We, are, we too often desire to sell out the eternal for the temporal. The long term eternal joy in Christ for the temporal faux joy in temporal things. We desperately need you to open our eyes to see the glories of Jesus, the wonders of your kingdom. the amazing joy that is in you. So we ask you to work in our lives, Lord. Open our eyes to see. Glorify yourself in us and through us. In your name I pray. Amen.